This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. Today's guest serves as the executive producer of the David Copperfield Show in Las Vegas. He's one of the most respected innovators and problem solvers in the magic industry today. He's an accomplished sleight of hand artist and was on the forefront of the art of cardistry. He is a tremendously savvy theatrical producer who is hardwired to deal with details and logistics. Coming up is my conversation with Chris Kenner. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. Hello, hello, my God. So how's it going, man? It's going great. I'm going to dive into your title because executive producer sounds like a big deal. And I know that there's a lot that goes on that people aren't aware of. But the word producer is so mysterious to people because it means different things in different industries. So in Broadway, producers are often people who raise money for a show. And in sitcoms, there's associate producers and different kinds of producers. So I guess I'd like you to tell me, as executive producer, soup to nuts, what kind of responsibilities you're in charge of? Wow. It's a tough question. Well, first off, I'm not a title guy, so I never looked at my title like I need to have this title or that title. So it doesn't mean anything to me. But kind of in our world with the show, it's basically all roads lead to me before they're funneled to David. If they don't go directly to David, like if it's a thing he's dealing with himself personally, anything to do with the show, the ticketing, the marketing, all of that would probably go straight through me. And then I'll either deal with it, filter it out to David. Now, that could be anything from hiring people because we have a a staff of over 30 people to the next day we're working on on an illusion. It's a creative process. So I just do whatever needs to be done. And honestly, if if we were about to do a museum tour of David's museum, and I walked in and the trash wasn't taken out, I'm gonna take the trash out. I just basically do anything I possibly can to progress ourselves the show, make it look good, think about it, don't wanna waste money and don't wanna to spend too much money. So that's it. It's like I can go up into each one of those for a half an hour about what they all are. Well, here's the thing. I do wanna break into a few of them because what is interesting is I totally agree that you're a jack of all trades and you have to know every part of that and you have to be able to do every part of that. But what people don't understand is that you're making financial decisions, that you're deciding what the ticket pricing is, you're dealing with advertising marketing, you're dealing with the labor, you're dealing with the onstage performance. Just the title seems vague for the amount of responsibility that you have. Well, that could be, but also I don't want five titles in my name. I just don't care. Everybody has an ego and mine doesn't work that way. I just think of it as like, I gotta get shit done and that's it, let's do it. And many, many times, you know, like an example, we were just in a situation where we had a project. We were in, in the Bahamas and we hadn't heard these speakers that were set up like 
10 years ago for this project. And now we're finally finishing it. And we didn't even know if they worked. So it was like a last minute thing. I'm like, you know what? Let's see if I can run some sound through. Let's run some sound through these speakers. And it was a pain in the butt. It was like, we're in the jungle kind of, we're in the middle of the Bahamas on a private Island. So we had to go find a, find some sort of receiver, find some sort of way to connect to the cables, find an output like, and a power cord because it, it was away from everything. And we just did it. And that's, that's what I do. It's it. I just kind of go, Hey, let's do this. And it's always to be better to advance the situation, to make it move forward. And that's the key in all of this stuff. Right. So whether it's the show in Las Vegas or putting together something theatrically on the island or what used to be touring in other countries or working with the television show, you were always involved in that decision and delegating. And that's amazing. A lot of times people will say, hey, I'll call Chris and David. I'll ask Chris and David. You know, it's the two of us are put together in many situations in one sentence. And I hate saying it like that because I don't like to make it sound like, oh, he needs me so badly. He needs me. Because I try so hard to set this whole situation up to where if I wasn't there, it'll just be fine. I don't want to be the guy that's the only guy that can do this or that's the only thing that can happen. That's, to me, not, not a smart management style. Yeah, but it comes to you instinctually. I think the... Nature of you being a problem solver. And I do want to explore that too, because you're a magician. I always think of magicians as people who look for possibilities instead of saying things can't be done. So when a trick is being developed, you don't go, we can't do it. You say, what method are we going to use? Whether you're saw lading in half or floating somebody or making them disappear, the magical mind doesn't say, forget that. The magical mind goes, well, do we want to use hydraulics or wires or twins or whatever? So isn't that from an early age, isn't that a part of where your problem solving comes from is thinking about what's possible? Well, that's always been it. First thing is I do look at a lot of things and think, how is that made? How do they do that? Why is that like that? And then that helps me see other things in a different way. The amount of times I've walked on a bridge and especially in Europe, these older bridges, I would walk across these bridges and I'd look at the trussing and, and think there's such different designs. Why did they build it like this? What has it made them think this? Is this some of this even necessary? And then you have to think there's an engineer. I just think about it. I look at everything, not just a bridge. I could look at why is that fire hydrant there as opposed to 10 feet into the street? There's a reason for all this stuff. So I always, always want to know in my head, see if I can solve it in my brain, like a puzzle almost. Every place is an escape room. You're just trying to figure out what's the answer to, to the, the solution to the problem is sitting in front of you. And if you do that enough, you start to be able to just look at things and solve the problem. Oh, we'll just do this because you've seen this one thing and go, how the hell did that work? Okay. Oh, well, they've got support up there and this goes here and looks like that supports the weight. You just kind of figure it out. And then eventually those things can come in handy for your kitchen engineering when you're just trying to design something and then you get a real engineer or you get a real architect or whoever needs to design it or make it or build it. Yeah, but that's a really good way of life because I know that when I walk into, let's say an antique store or a garage sale or something, sometimes I pick a thing up and I have no idea what it does. I just go, what the hell could this be for? And that's the same kind of thing where I look at it, I won't walk away from that puzzle until I go, oh, this is some kind of an old thing for putting shoes on or something. I don't know if you've ever done that. You probably do it in the magic business because there's so many little gimmicks and tricks that you go, this is for something, but I don't know what it does. Well, I always give things a fake history if I don't know what they are. I just make up a <laughs> BS history of it to, to myself. 
Well, this is uh, obviously it was created for the mid-century. You know, I just whatever you just start making up in your head some story about it, and you think, okay, well, this was owned by a captain in the in the military, and he gave it to his wife after he died, and then she had it for ten years, gave it to his son, and it ended up here. I can't believe. I just. I love that. I love it. You know, it's funny when I was in Europe for the first time. I remember being in Italy and in a store where a guy was trying to sell me a hat rack that belonged to Columbus. <laughs> and I thought to myself, how many of these has he sold to idiots? It was an old antique hat rack. And he's like, this is Columbus's hat rack. And I'm like, how many of these do you have in the back? Because he was such a good storyteller that my wife was like, well, it's pretty good price. I go, no, it's not. It's not Columbus's hat rack. It's a $5 hat rack. I know the show has the word creativity in it. And creativity is something that we all use, but it's the word creative that in my conversations with you, I find it can be a sticking point. And that is because a person being a creative, which is a noun, is a no-no with you. <laughs> to be creative as a verb is an acceptable thing to help solve problems. But if I were to call you a creative, what would your reaction be? Most of the time I would just let it go. But my problem with that word is it's used like currency. And a lot of people use it that don't deserve it. And it's just thrown around like genius. Oh, that's genius. You're genius. One of my problems is when you hear it so much and people tell it to you so much, you believe it. And then look up what creativity is for real. And then think about really creating something and not a card trick or solving a little problem with saving some money. It's just, it's a huge thing. And I think I told you the story with Penn Jillette about that. I'll just quickly say it. It's like I was in a movie theater. I run into Penn and I know Penn very well. So he, we say hi and we're talking about something. And then he mentioned some problem. I can't even remember what it was like, oh, you know, I got this, this, this. And so I, I look at him and I say, oh, I'm, I'm pretty creative. I think I can figure that out. And he looked at me and he goes, oh, you're one of those guys. And I, I thought, oh, what's he talking about? He goes, yeah, you, you know, call yourself creative. And then I just kind of shut up and continue talking about something else and thought about it the entire movie and then went home, kind of looked up creative, thought about it and thought, well, you know, <sighs> he's right. Why am I labeling myself as creative? <laughs> uh, and I, I really don't think of it that way. I think of it as everything I do is pro solving a problem. And with Penn, it, I, I thank him for it in my head. I just, every time I think about the story, I thank him for it because it made me rethink the way I looked at those words. How many times have you heard people say they're creative or, oh my gosh, that person's creative. And you don't think they are in your head. You're like, well, I don't really know. Are they really creative? Is that really creative what they're doing over there? If people were really creative, we'd have a bunch of very different magicians. We'd have a bunch of oddball comedians that are all opposites. So many people are so much formulatic in their performance style. It's a tough word. It's a tough word. And maybe they can say, you can say they're a little creative. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. That's funny. We need some little thing to describe the volume of creativity that a person puts out. I just found that in all the disciplines that I worked in, whether it was writing or magic or comedy or musical, any kind of thing that I was involved in, it returned to, to me, creativity was sort of the kernel of it, which was to create something or build something, bring something to life that I realized, oh, I'm not just one of these things. So it was a little bit more of a wellspring to go to. And it wasn't that I had the power to do it, 
It was that I was willing to explore a new area and then see what got discovered and then amplify that idea and often find collaborators because I can't make something. I don't know how to write music, but I know how to communicate to a composer. So I guess I think of it more as a pool to swim in with others than I do of it being something that I infuse into it. Yeah. One of the things that David does, and I've done this myself my whole life, is once after I kind of looked at the way I looked at creativity and thought, you know, I'm really just kind of looking at an issue or a problem and then solving it. I'm not waking up with this brilliant idea how to cure cancer. I'm like, I need to do a card trick and I want to do this and how do I do it or whatever it would be. And then I just solve that problem through thought process and logic and whatever. So the process is really, it's, it's very simple to me. It's just a problem solving issue. I don't know how to describe the anger I get when people just toss around those words like they're nothing. I do think that when you're problem solving, we talk about logistics, we talk about things, you actually have to look at things fresh every day because you have to fill the seats of your theater. And people think you're in the entertainment business, but I would contend that you're in the real estate business. And by that, I mean, you are renting seats and every seat counts, right? From a performance standpoint, from a financial standpoint, and every show, you look at it as an airplane or a hotel, that those seats, if they're empty, are not worth anything. At the moment the curtain goes up, that stuff becomes not worth anything. And the next day you have a chance to rent those seats again. And it's not to diminish anything. The point is, is that this is an ongoing thing that you have to do while putting on this amazing show, while doing all the marketing. You have to be sure that bodies are in those seats. And that's what keeps everything going. It is not, if you build it, they will come. A lot of people think it's like that. Even if David's name, he's a big name. So you still have to work at it because there's so much competition against you in Vegas. And what happened to us with COVID hitting was it changed the whole town. So I would say a little bit more than 50%, and that's a real number, a little bit more, I would say 50, 52 to 55, depending on the month of our audience is international. And they're not coming right now. They're not really here. You know, they are to an extent in a small, very small percentage from what it was before. So we're relying on a totally different group of people coming. It's mostly Americans. It's different than normal. And so I have to kind of think about how do I get those people to come to the show? And that's a process. It's a different thought process. Should we move advertising around, change it around, ask people where they saw, where they got the idea to come to the show? And you take that information and you put it together and realize I could spend a little more here, never spend anything here because no one's even mentioned it. COVID has reset Las Vegas in a very unusual way, in a good way, actually. But when international crowds come back, we'll have years and years and years of just very good success, I think. So that's a, that's a good thing. Yeah, that's a really interesting problem, though, to have arisen, because for all of the other things, you never really think a pandemic is going to enter your world. You're a movie-watching guy, so when you think about 10 years ago or whenever movies about pandemics or things were going on, it always seemed like kind of crazy and far-fetched. But it comes into the world, and then 
health aside and all of those kinds of things, the fact that it impacted so many businesses and so many people's line of work and so many families, and you you have to think your way out of it because, as you said, strategizing to communicate to a new audience became critical, and we don't know how long that situation with travel or customs or bringing people in is going to be hampered at the moment. So I applaud you for looking at change as something that is a part of the problems you have to solve. Before COVID, I used to jokingly say, if I went in a coma and you woke me up and then plopped me in the middle of the casino, I could tell you what convention was in town and almost what month it was, just because what's open? Is, it, is there a big line at the buffet? That means it's a discounted hotel and the blackjack limit's probably $5. If there's no line at the buffet and all the steakhouses and sushi houses are completely full that are in the casinos and the bet limit on blackjack or on roulette is $15 or $20, that means there's a big convention in town. There's money in town. It could be Chinese New Year. You know, because there's all sorts of different things that come into play. And you can see that in the pattern of the hotel because they think about it. Why shouldn't I? I think so many shows just toss their advertising out there. They don't think about why it's working or what time of year it is and what's coming. They might go, well, it's good in this month and it's bad in that month. My opinion is how do you make the bad month the good month? What can you do? Let's say the same way I would look at if I was working on a trick, a card trick or a coin trick, whatever it would be, some sort of effect. If I'm not satisfied with it, I'm not going to just leave it because it works. I'm going to still play with it and think about it, even if it's in the back of my head. And then you eventually solve it and come up with a different method, different idea, and you make it better. You constantly make something better. If it's like everything is evolving, then everything is getting better for the most part. You can make it worse. You can actually evolve it into bad too, but hopefully you don't. <laughs> right. So, uh, you know, like that's too much plastic surgery. Eventually that evolution is, it turns your face inside out. But you talked about how competitive the marketplace is, and you do have to look at cab toppers and billboards and in-casino placement and all of those. Like every week you have to make decisions of that nature, don't you? Um, yeah, we usually, those are kind of done months in advance because you have to purchase advertising over time. But you can, you can wrap stuff down, which is what I would do. Let's say I just know summer's going to be good, Christmas is going to be good. Why would I advertise at Christmas time? It's a no-brainer to sell 50% of the house the day of if I had to, you know, if it needed to be. So if I know that I'm at almost 50% a month and a half away, why the heck am I advertising in December? The only thing that I have as an advantage versus other things is I don't have a committee. Okay, let's say we have, I'm filled with meet and greets. We normally do uh, the max of 20 meet and greets per show. Let's say it's filled up and it's five days prior. I might look at that and go, I'd ask David, hey, are you okay if we did 30? And just open up some more seats to be meet and greets. So they get to come and see a meet and greet. And then now David's doing an extra trick at the meet and greet. So people meet him, they, he gives them a headshot, and then he does another trick for the group. It's great. People leave extremely satisfied. So let's say I just wanted to move the ticket prices back a row or move the ticket prices up a row. or I, guess it just, I can do it on the fly. I don't have to ask anybody. I just do it because I know I'm I know I'm thinking about it in the process to make more money and fill the house. So let's talk about the dynamic ticket pricing, because I think the average ticket buyer, and this isn't to exploit any secrets, it's happening in the industries worldwide with touring Broadway shows with all kinds of folks, because there are times that shows don't do well and everything stays at sort of an intro price to try to get those seats up. 
But when you get to a certain point, a show like David's show, millions and millions of dollars are put into the development of a show that the person who pays $100, sometimes they go, this is a lot for a ticket to a show. But in the end, it really costs a lot to get those shows up and running and then to keep them running and to keep paying for marketing and and all that kind of stuff. So the advantage to this new concept of dynamic ticketing is a little like airlines changing their prices when planes get a certain percent full. But but the thing that makes it, I think, legitimate and appropriate is that oftentimes it'll say tickets start at $59. So as long as you're making people aware that there may be a change in price, it's a very important part of success as a producer is to maintain the, the high traffic situation and take advantage of when people want a ticket, a supply and demand situation. Yeah, well, it's like a hotel room or I think. You can see the prices go up when there's, we just had a bunch of big events, like the, it was a Pro Bowl, plus there was the All-Star Hockey game, and then there was a big concert in town. So it was full, the town was full. So the hotel prices were up, and then they immediately go back down two days later. I look at it like, what's that t- seat worth to me for the year? And can I get as much I, as I want out of each seat? Per year. So what's, what is all this worth to me? And then what's the average? And then you end up down with, it's not just about the average ticket price. It's about which seats are more important than others. So for, let's say the front, I just, it's probably boring to most people, but let's say the front section of five rows always sells no matter what, no matter if that's all that's sold. I mean, we never would be in this situation, but nothing sold behind it. Those seem to always sell. They're the best seats to the highest price. So when things are good and going good, I'm going to bring those rows back a couple of rows for that same cost. And it's not to screw anybody over. It's not to do anything. That's just part of business. And that's the way ticketing works. It's the way marketing works. You want to do the best you can and give the people the best show they possibly can, which is another part of it too, because you're constantly working on the quality and the show. And nowadays it's, it's just hard to find people. You know, I don't know if you have ever tried to hire someone, but it's just really it's, Everyone across the board is having a hard time hiring people. It's hard. And we, our people work seven days a week for the most part. I think part of that issue has to do with the fact that there are so many outlets to jump in your car and drive an Uber or rent your house in an Airbnb. Or the people are kind of trying to take stake in how they spend their time and whether they work for somebody or for themselves. Things have opened up, I think, where people know how to get enough just to get by. And so they don't want to necessarily give somebody a 40-hour week. When everybody went home working online during the pandemic, they realized they could get their laundry done and they could go get a haircut and nobody would know they were gone. You know what I mean? Like they had a little bit of freedom and then they're like, I'm not going to go flip burgers. This is all politically weird, but the government gave quite a bit of money to people to do nothing. And then to go back to do something to get almost the same for doing nothing. So I think that's hard mentally for some people. In a good way, I think, you know, people's salaries did go up for for most part in certain things. I want to take you back to your childhood for a moment, because I know that you are a big movie guy, that going to the movies was a big part of your early life, which was storytelling and cinematic adventures. And I guess I'm wondering how that impacts the performances you do and the productions you put on. How much do movies influence you? More so than almost anything, I would say, because 
the same way I look at that bridge walking down the street and how did that work? How'd they make that? Why did they make that? In a movie, it's that times a hundred. Why did they pick that person to play that character? What, why, how, why did they, how did they figure out that that guy would be so good? Why is this film shot as dark as it is? Why is it just every little thing in there? It, you look at and there's, there was a, someone made that conscious decision. You know, there are movies where they just, they're just shots, bright lights and, there's not a lot of thought. It's either a comedy or just a, a poorly produced movie that they didn't, they didn't have, have a lighting director. But I just watched Dune. We watched Dune recently. And that movie, it's not my kind of movie. It's a little like, this is not my thing, but man, is it beautiful. And it puts you in this very great feeling and mood because of its beauty. So there are many times I'll see a movie and I'm like, if, even if I didn't think it was that great of a movie, I can say that movie was amazingly beautiful that was unbelievable to look at just to stare at it and that is an accomplishment by itself now if you take that now i really understand when someone who gets into that kind of movie would would think that was un really unbelievable movie because i got taken in just by the visuals and then i'm trying to like pay attention to who would plan it what and who did what oh my god i don't know the story at all and i also think how, how on earth did they do that is that a practical effect is that CGI. And then I'll go back and watch. I just watched, uh, and it didn't really hold up like I thought it was going to. I watched uh, Schwarzenegger's The Last Action Hero. And as I remember just having, I wanted to look at an 80s movie. I think it's 80s or maybe early 90s movie that had practical effects, not a lot of CGI. It didn't hold up, but I can remember watching those kind of movies and thinking, oh, how'd they do that car chase? How'd they do that? How'd that car barely miss that? Because that's a real car. They often would like crash a train with five cameras or 15 cameras on it because it was one train and we got to shoot it from every angle right now. Right. One shot. We're going to have to write off the cost of a, a train going off the track and burrowing into the hill. And, you know, you read about these directors that David Fincher, when you look at the movie seven, read about how he developed the characters in that. So when the characters met, uh, and I'll probably get this one maybe backwards, but when the characters meet Morgan Freeman's character and Brad Pitt's character, they're very far apart in the room. Their distance is far apart because they don't know each other. And as they become friends, every scene that they're in, their distance is closer. Wow, that blew me away that that's, that thought process was in there. And Fincher really puts thought into what he does every scene. Yeah, and I think that we don't know the emotional impact of that those simple decisions of our actors facing each other or they're facing away from each other. All of that, every little choice matters in storytelling. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, as you know, you can tell a good storyteller visually from that. I've seen things that have great stories that just aren't told right. It's always, I always hate it when there's one either actor, scene, or person that yanks me out of the movie or the scene because it didn't fit or because it was either too obvious or too formula perfect, the odds of these two people running into each other, at some point that becomes, oh, it's okay if it happens once, but then when it happens three more times, okay, all right, all right, all right a little much here. I can't, I'm, 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 I'm out of this. <laughs> I, I love when a director makes a choice of a camera placement where it might be that we're looking through a door frame, but the main character's half out of frame on the door jam, and it's a weird choice, 
but it makes me feel like, oh, I'm kind of spying on that person versus somebody who really didn't have the maturity as a director would probably push through the door frame and stay right on the character. But it gave me that feeling of being just outside, which means I'm overhearing them on the telephone. I mean, it does something to you viscerally as an audience member where they place a camera. Yeah, like they can visually make you feel uncomfortable or comfortable. What movies can you think back to were the earliest influences on you? Well, I was a kid. I think this movie came out in 73, maybe. Huge influence on me and still is, and I still watch this movie at least every three or four years. It's called The Last of Sheila. It's got James Colburn in it, Raquel Welch, the young Ian McShane. I think Steven Sodheim wrote it, and, and Anthony Perkins or some crazy people wrote it. So it's a murder mystery, and it's on a boat. I loved this. Th I still do. I love this movie. To me, it still holds up as a movie, and it's has escape room ish feeling to it. It has a definitely a mystery that you who done it. It has a lot of boxes are checked in the thriller type who done it ish kind of genre. And nobody's ever heard of it. I heard I recently read somebody somebody online, some big director was talking about it wanting to re remake it. But it's just that movie influenced me gigantic, gigantic influence. And the other movie that another giant movie for me and was 75 was been Jaws when Jaws came out. Jaws really was the thing. It was like, all right, I want to make, I want to be in the entertainment business. I want to make movies. That's what I wanted to do. Still kind of want to do. But when I saw Jaws and it just, boy, every scene with music works, all the characters are great. The more I learn about how it was made, the more I feel it was great. The stories about how it almost didn't get made, made it and changes and the shark didn't work and how they had to like work with what they had, how they had to freaking problem solve. And AKA be creative to figure out how to make the shark even work with what they had and get away with it because they're making this giant budget movie and it became the first blockbuster. Yeah. They held the shark back as long as they could. Like they, the tension they built up about this shark, whether you saw a girl go underwater or you saw other things, you didn't really see the shark till late in the movie, which is brilliant. And obviously, been copied so much. It's like Halloween was another movie that when I first saw Halloween, I was like, okay, this is a, this is changing something. Horror films weren't like that. The, sh the Basically the shape that just can't die and just walks towards you and just keeps coming. The listener cannot see what I see, which I can see into your home office or some, well, your backdrop is Stormtroopers and Darth Vader and Millennial Falcon. And you're really into adventure movies. I know you're into Star Wars. I know you're into Batman. I know you're into James Bond and you have a tremendous collection of posters and memorabilia. And it's kind of exciting that you've made a life and a profession where you can afford to then bring some of what you loved in childhood right into your into your house. So the thing you're most proud of in the collection that you have there at home. Hmm. The most thing, the thing I'm the most excited of, I got recently, and it's, it's funny, which I was just talking about. So the last of Sheila movie, I saw it when we were my parents and I were on vacation and we were in Huntsville, Alabama, and we just, we needed something to do that night. We went and saw this movie and it wasn't out very long. Just was just not really heard of it. But when I walked up to that movie theater, there was a six sheet. So 81 inches by 81 inches poster for this movie on the wall. And it was big. It was the first time I'd seen this big of a poster. And I just remember staring at it and looking at it. And I told my dad, Oh, this is unbelievable. This poster is so great. And he knew I loved the movie. So my dad, when we went back to St. Louis, tried to get me one of those posters. 
and he couldn't. He couldn't do it. It wasn't like you know now you can just buy one on eBay. Supposedly, I uh, I'm getting that story. So I have since I like that movie, I have basically all all foreign posters. I have all the one sheets. I have everything that's possible to get of that movie. But I couldn't find that six sheet. I just couldn't find it. So for I want to say five six years, I've had an eBay alert set for memorabilia for the last of Sheila. I can't make this up. This is just unbelievably coincidental. And what happened? I'm sitting in bed and I'm like looking at my alert and I get, I always get alerts and it's for like pictures and lobby cards, simple stuff that I only have. And I'm like, okay, I'm them. I have everything. I'm not, this poster maybe doesn't even exist. And I imagined it. I don't know. So I'm laying in bed and I'm on my phone and I'm like, I'm going to delete this thing. I don't want to, I don't want to get it anymore. I don't want these alerts anymore. So I couldn't figure out how to quickly do it on my phone. I was half asleep. So I said, I'll do it when I get to my computer. So I, I set it down. I wake up that day. I go to my computer and I, there's, there's in England an alert for a six sheet. And I almost turned it off <laughs> and it was $35. I love that. I would have paid $5,000 for it. $35. And I, I got it and I haven't, I haven't mounted it yet because I kind of, my wall space is full, but I'm going to just take something down and move it. But I wanted that poster. That's one of the one things I wanted, like a hunt. It's been a hunt for me. There's very few hunt posters I have. And that's, that was one of them when finding it. And also the fact that it's a movie that influenced me was, is a huge deal. I'm trying to find a six sheet Jaws poster. I can't find a good one either. That's the $35 poster that's going to cost you $5,000 to mount and frame. Correct. Yes, exactly. It is 100% well. <laughs> yeah. They're going to get the money either way from you. But... Exactly. <laughs> I understand, among other things, you are an art collector. And I had a conversation with artist Frank Kozig, who I found to be a fascinating guy. And I understand you have some of his work in your collection. Oh, my God, I have a lot of it. And it's actually very difficult to get some of the stuff as a series. So he did these vinyl busts of Reagan, Ho Chi Minh, he's, he's got Mao, and they're hard to get. He makes like 50 of each, and there's 12 or 13 colors of each thing. And they're awesome, just look them up online, it's just so great. I've seen the pink Mao before. Yeah, so I didn't want one, I wanted the entire set. The way I understand it, I could be wrong, but I think it's something similar to this. Each color goes to a different toy store. So let's say all, 50 red ones. Those 50 red ones go to this one store and that's the only one they have. They don't have one of each color or three of each color. So they have colors sitting around. One place gets the yellow one. A place in Japan gets the blue one. So they're hard to hunt down and get every single one. And I started trying to do that with the Mao's at first and they were really hard to find. So I ran into a guy who works with Frank. His name is Dov. And he said, I can get you a set. I think Frank has a set of a couple of the versions. And I'm like, I'll straight out buy them all. So I just, I could buy them in sets. I don't think they, they don't sell them in sets. So just to have all of them together, and you've seen them, I think, in my house. It's great to see this, all of them lined up next to each other. And the army men are my favorite. They're the, these little army men, and you can make them peaceful or like army men. So they can have different things in their hands. You can change their hands. He's just a really great artist. He's thoughtful, and He's cool and he's, everything's hip and he's always got this little edge to it. So I just, I love, I love his stuff. It's so great. I'm more the vinyl than the print and his print stuff's unbelievable too. He started in print and silk screening, but he's always a guy evolving 
And when he got into vinyl and when he got into toys and when he got into busts, when he got into each of those things, he is always exploring the technology and development of art and merchandising. He's really, really on the front edge of that at all times. Yeah, and I also I also like the fact that he's not just trying to commercialize his stuff and pound it out. It just seems like he wants to make what he wants to make and then go to the next thing. It's like, I just did this and I'm going to go and make my next thing. And he doesn't go back to it and go, I'm going to re-release that just to make some extra bucks. It's I, I just really appreciate that in, a, in an artist. Have you ever met him in person? I have, yeah, at Comic-Con. He must know how much of his work that you're holding. I think he does know I have his stuff. I'm pretty sure he knows that at least he would know that, oh, there's a guy that works David Copperfield that has a, a bunch of your stuff. By the way, I loved earlier when you were talking about Jaws, when you used the phrase AKA creative. Maybe that's what I'll call this episode because I like how you put the AKA on there to take the stink off the word creative. Yeah, well, I don't really think about it as a stink. I just, I, I think if creative was, was really used for the people that deserved it, it'd be great. Name a magician that you know that doesn't think they're creative. They all do. The guy, they buy store-bought tricks. They add a line to it or they do one thing that make it fit them and it's, they're geniuses. I would equate it a little bit more to the Apple Genius Bar where they have a t-shirt on that says they're a genius. And believe me, they're far brighter than I am. But what the Genius Bar makes me feel like is that I'm an idiot. When I go in, I got to hand my computer over to them and they get a bunch of couple of buttons that they do time and time again. But I, that must inflate their ego when they go to the mall snack bar and their genius t-shirt and wait in line. <laughs> and they need like the, you know, the person that works at the subway needs the subway genius. <laughs> there needs to be a genius bar at the subway where it's like, I don't really know what to put on my sandwich. Well, you know, it's not, sir. Uh, you look like uh, you could lose a few pounds. Maybe you should get the turkey without the bread. <laughs> we do have a salad. Yes, yes. Ladies and gentlemen, the subway genius. You've just invented something, my friend. So it is like the word awesome because the word awesome, I think, used to mean looking at a sunrise at the Grand Canyon coming up. And now it's like I had the most awesome bagel. It just seems like that word has become nothing. Oh, yeah. And I use it a lot. So it's also when somebody tags them with LOL. Are they really laughing out loud at home? <laughs> because you are really an accomplished sleight of hand artist, and I know it from the very early youthful days when we were both at Midwest Magic Conventions, and you were a finger flinger. I mean, you really can handle deck cards. But I want to know what your relationship is with playing cards. Like what percentage of your day are you handling cards unconsciously or, oh, you've got a pack in your hands now. All right. How much waking hours are you holding a deck of cards? Five hours. Wow. Every day. Every day. No problem. There are times when I won't touch them in a day if I have, like if I'm on vacation or we were just in the Bahamas and what I would do would be we would come back home and wind down or go back to the house and wind down. Nicole would go to bed and I would play with a deck of cards. And if Nicole wasn't there, I would just sit and play with a deck of cards. Just that's just what I do. It's like I I have either have I have the move du jour, you know, I have a move or there's a, a, a thing I want to make better or do it better. So obviously repeating it is what makes you practice. So constantly, I'm constantly fiddling. It's, it's part of me. I go to meetings with people and I have a deck of cards in my hand. I know when I was a kid, I had cards with me a lot. 
practicing, but I was constantly, you know, you needed something to initiate the trick you were practicing. And I would like open the bathroom door and they'd go, get out of here. And I always used to equate a deck of cards to a pack of cigarettes. Like I would say, I was up to three packs a day. I do not interject myself into people to do a trick. I do not want to do a trick for anyone. I do not care to do a trick. I'm not here to do a trick. If I have a deck of cards, that's not an invitation to ask me to do a trick. It is for so many because that's their personality. It's me fiddling. It's how I kind of get through it. So it's it's unusual. Sometimes I, I have to have that uncomfortable situation where someone says, oh, do a trick. You've got cards. Do a trick. Do a trick for me. Uh, nah, nah, not really. I'm just kind of playing. I don't do tricks. I, I just fiddle. That's it. I just have to belittle it a little. And I think I have a personality and I can talk to people. So I don't need a deck of cards or a magic trick to break the ice every time I go somewhere. Because there's so many people that their label is they're a magician. I don't ever say I'm a magician anyway. Here's what I will say. You are tremendously supportive of young magicians and particularly these flourishing folks that are doing the cardistry that's unbelievable. Some of the stuff I see on Instagram and online, it's such an advanced amount of hand ballet going on there with cards. But I was in Las Vegas at a conference called Magic Live, and I strolled around with you to a few tables, and you are a good audience. Like You really focus on moments and moves and seeing how people do things, and I think you've been instrumental in helping people improve what they're doing. So I feel like you're particularly good mentor to folks that have promise. Well, thanks for that. I, and I think the kids, kids are definitely the future of our, our world, no matter what it is. If you just look at it from the magic point of view, I'm an old guy, I'm 59. And I see so many people that at my age, look at these young kids that are learning things so fast and online from their friends. They've got an open source learning experience online and they can learn from YouTube, all of these things. And they're like, they didn't learn like we did and they have their whippersnappers and they, they can't perform and they can't, they just want to cut it down. And in my opinion, it's like, there is no way that I'm going to punish these kids for the tools they have. I would have done anything, anything to be able to read a move that I didn't quite understand and look it up online and see it done correctly. I would have learned stuff so quick. I would have been so much better younger and I don't see it like I learned the hard way. No, I didn't. I just learned the way I learned. And I'm now learning the way they do. If I want to look something up, I look it up. I'm going to use the tools too. Just to get on the page. Don't get pissed because they're way better than we ever were young. And I mean, way better. Believe me, technique is a very interesting thing that if you see it's possible, then it's worth working on. And I guess I would say what I would credit you for is at the time when we didn't have access to online learning, we sat in our room and we had to do it till we figured it out. Especially if you saw it once somewhere in St. Louis or in Kansas City, and then you had to recall it. Months later, you go, I, I vaguely remember, I think. And ultimately, the development and the innovation came from searching for a solution of how to get to the result. There's so many great things that would come up. You'd see something... And then you remember it incorrectly and you try to recreate what you remembered incorrectly. And it might be a better idea or a different idea. But speaking of the youth, if you look at directors, remember when we were kids, all the directors were like kind of old. There weren't a lot of young directors. 
there were the old wise men that were directing movies. And now it's like there's so many of these young guys that are directing movies out of the box. And they're doing it very well because they have so much knowledge they've gotten from the internet and they've read books and they've watched zillion movies that they can, which you couldn't do back then. If I wanted to rewatch Jaws in 1978, I couldn't do it. And the same for young female directors. The intimidation of production has gone away because their life is they're shooting everything on an iPhone. They're seeing the world through a lens. They're not having to wait for film to be developed or hand splicing. What you can do with movie magic on your iPad is really advancing storytelling, and it's really allowing new voices to be heard. And the CGI is an interesting thing because now anything's possible. You can have a giraffe with a gorilla head be a main character, and somehow they figure it out, and they get Andy Serkis to do the acting, and then it's all fine. Who's the guy who did all the Lord of the Rings? And yeah. He was Gollum. For those who may not know, I just heard something the other day that it, during the pandemic, he sat down and read continuously the Lord of the Rings trilogy book and something else. Maybe it was The Hobbit he first did. 11 hours straight, he read that book, continuous online live to raise money for a charity. That's an acting accomplishment to no end. And subsequently, he started to do some other ones. But that's making good of your talent at a time when you can't perform otherwise. You wrote some books early on, magic books, uh, totally out of control and the right stuff. So some of your legacy of the work that you're seeing people do that you did, or some of the flourishes you did, are available to younger audiences if they're willing to take their eyes off YouTube and look at paper. That's the interesting thing is, the books, the library, for example, David's Museum that you all have access to, think of how little bit of that information the new generation even knows about. The amount of actual knowledge that's still available that they're unaware of. I mean, I had a trip. I had the, as your guest, I had a luxury of going to the museum. First of all, I can't even thank you and David and your team enough for the fact that you take people through. It's not a museum where you point at things and go look at that stuff. It's a presentation that's several hours that follows a show where David has already entertained crowds all week. It's the most generous gift and salute to the history of magic and the props and the magicians before us to actually be taken face to face with the props and the costumes it's really one of the most amazing experiences I had over COVID was to come make that visit. And you and he share time presenting unbelievably lovingly the effects and performing little tricks within it. I, like, I can't even understand why you guys do it because it doesn't seem like you have time to do that. Thanks for that. One of the things that's it's hard to explain to people is that well, you just said it. We have just done two shows or three, depending on the night. And we do this tour at 1130 at night. It's two to two and a half hours. And it requires my time and David's time. And we're both busy. And about about eight to 10 of our staff to do it. <laughs> so people flippantly ask me for these warehouse tours. Oh, can I go to the museum? Oh, I'm going to be in town tomorrow. Can you guys set up a museum tour for me tomorrow night? I don't know. I don't mean mean to anybody, but that's like, really, I just, well, I, we don't have any tours set up. And they often get upset or depressed and even mad that I won't, I, I'm not sure what they want us to do, but it's a, it's definitely a big event. It's an event, hundred percent event. 
and no matter who you are, doesn't matter about magician, non-magician. So many people, I would say we do more tours for non-magic people than magic people. And they like him as much or better than the magicians. It's pretty crazy. I can imagine. And it is a private museum and you do have to have an invite, but there is a new book out that I know is available everywhere called David Copperfield's History of Magic that shows amazing photographs of all of that. And your associate Homer photographed so much of that. We talked to him on this podcast about how he lit some of that equipment and what it required to sort of cover all of that territory. Uh, but I would encourage people to take a look at that just to see how much, what a volume you had. But what impressed me also when we were just talking about the library is that when the pandemic slowed things down and shows came to a halt, you took advantage of that to categorize and build this unbelievable library in the museum with every square inch of the wall and every angle into consideration to use every. And that blew my mind because I was like, oh, this is like a fantasy museum of all magical archives. I'm sure as big as there is in the world. Am I right about that? Oh yeah, for sure. Put together and definitely nothing is displayed like that. People from the Smithsonian, and I don't mean like one of them, almost every single one that ever comes from museums that are museum people, and we know a lot of Smithsonian people, they'll come in and they'll be like, what? This is the most unbelievable private museum we have ever seen, and it rivals most museums. So it's the lighting, the music, the cues, the, the walkthrough. It's just re it's really something. And it, it's unfortunate that we max out each tour to eight people because we want everyone to be engaged and to listen and to not drift off and anytime we go more than eight, we seem to have one person that'll kind of shy away and or they'll talk to me or they'll talk to David when one of when he's talking or when I'm talking. So it's uh it's the perfect little number is eight. And that's just so little people. And we maybe do a tour every two weeks. Sometimes we'll do three a week, sometimes we won't do any in a month. So it's it's all depends on who's here, who's in town, if we are up to staying up late. Let me tell you, every little bit of what I saw and where I looked, and I know there was a, a whole tribute to ventriloquism as well, and was really amazing. But the moment of pathos that I saw when David was presenting in the childhood magic shop, I, I don't know if it was Lewis Tannins or, or I think it was, that it was the showroom that had been recreated there down to the very smallest thing. And there was a woman who had worked for Lewis Tannins that was in our group of eight. And when the lights came up on that, he was emotional, she was emotional, and it was, there was an extreme vulnerability there that was a peek into David's youth that was amazing. And it was something that I'm sure he didn't want to expose a little bit, but it was, it really felt extraordinary to see that connection between the two of those people who were now in a recreated location that brought back all the emotions of their lives. Oh yeah. So many people that grew up going to Tannin. So people basically 60 and over that come there, they cry. It's crazy because they haven't seen that store and they would do anything to go there on a Saturday and just hang out and the smell of the place, the feel of the place. So David tried to recreate the entire feeling. And he obviously did it because it, boy, does it affect some people. And so we've got a guy, a friend of ours comes to the tours sometimes when he knows there's some New York magicians there. 
and he just stands there just for the beginning of the tour to watch that room and then he leaves because he wants to see the reactions he wants to see the reactions of the people because they they don't know what to think they're in awe so many have cried like literally tears in their eyes and a lot of magicians i wouldn't have expected to do that it's pretty crazy well let me say this to the listener you may not be able to go to the museum, but you can absolutely go to David's show, which is in Las Vegas at the MGM. When I saw it last, it was extraordinary. So much amazing stuff. I will not spoil anything, but the routines with the dinosaur and the spaceship and, and the cinematic things with the movies and the puppetry, it's, it's all theatrical elements that bring you to great emotional feelings. There's great mystery and marvel and magic and wonder, and it's absolutely the best ticket in town. So I would encourage them to do that. Also, because of your mention of the last of Sheila, I think we could probably uptick the watches now. I love it. You may be the single strongest voice promoting last of Sheila, but I have not seen it. You need to see it. You need to see it. It's very, very good. You don't know how excited I am because it's so rare. And don't read the Wikipedia because it's it's a mis it's a it's a whodunit. So don't read anything about it. I'm not going to read anything. Do you know where it's available? Is it on Netflix or Hulu uh, or something? I don't know. I had a DVD of it, and I I ripped it and put it on my Plex server just because I couldn't. I don't have a DVD player. Shh, don't tell anybody. No, I don't have a DVD player anymore. Okay, nobody does. I owned the movie. I bought it. Yeah, who has it? Yeah, who has? But that? anyway, Chris, you're awesome. I will not call you creative, but I will say you are one of the most AKA creative problem solvers that I know. I really appreciate you investing the time and sharing some of your insights with us today. And I look forward to seeing you in Las Vegas again soon. All right, we'll see you soon. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, with sound editing by the steady hand of Tucker Hazel. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp with additional production support and sanity provided by Delilah Lovejoy, Marcus Siniskalki, Tony Deo, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You're hearing that right, it's dot fun, as in cross your T's and dot your fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page Stepping on a ghost stage